Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast where we explore classic texts for the modern martial artist. As we continue the Vatanstal saga today, we're going to start seeing some conflict. Pay attention to what matters to these people. When does violence become justified? Do they wait, even after it is justified, to try and find a peaceful solution? If so, why do they do that? These are the questions, and at times the answers, that we need to think about in our own lives, about not just how to do violence, but also the why and the when. Let's get started and learn a bit about Frolif, the bad neighbor. Rolief and his mother Liat sailed over from Norway to Iceland. We're not told why, but as you'll soon see, I can guess why they left Norway. It probably was because they had to, because they're both awful people. The author of the saga effectively tells us the same thing, stating that Liat was, quote, a law unto herself, unquote, who had nothing to do with decent people. Her son, Hrolif, we are told, was no different. Unfortunately, Hrolif is was also the nephew of Samund, Ingemund's foster brother. They show up at his door and announce their connection to Samund. For his part, Samund doesn't mince words. He offers them a place for the winter, but says he's concerned that Hrolif takes after his awful mother. Hrolif ends up spending the winter bullying others. We're told he was a very strong man, but misused his strength against, quote, lesser men. You may recall this was a point emphasized with earlier people in this saga, that they may have been strong, but they didn't misuse their strength. Well, Perolif? He picked fights, pushed people around, and paid back kindness with cruelty. A particular divide formed between Perolif and Samansund, Girmund. Girmund finally takes all this up with his father and tells Samen that Frolif has repaid his kindness with the things he has in abundance. That is, threats, harsh words, and cruel deeds. Apparently some people had suffered broken bones due to Frolif, and Girmund says that everyone else was too afraid to speak up about it. Samen agrees he's had enough of this, and Frolif, who apparently was there this whole time, says that it's disgraceful to be a bunch of whiners and to not support family. He also makes some offhand comments about not letting beggars kick him in the teeth. I can see why no one likes him. Samund again tells Frolief he is taking after his mother more than he should, and then sends them off to a homestead north of Unadal. Samund recommends to Frolief that he get along with his neighbors and ask permission to settle there. Frolief, of course, says he doesn't feel like asking anyone for permission. Rolief and his mother head out and set up home quickly, becoming disliked by everyone around them. They are described as making threats and wandering around with scowls on their faces. We're told that people started to think Samund had sent a, quote, nasty piece of driftwood their way, end quote. <laughs> it's moments like these that I appreciate the sagas as literature. In numerous places, there is a way with words that shows the clever ways people communicated with each other in this time period. As you will see eventually, indirectly referring things, or to things, in a clever or poetic way is a hallmark of the sagas. Either way, Froleaf apparently didn't grow up on Mr. Rogers, as everyone in the neighborhood started hating them both. 
Unfortunately, they also knew that Froelich was Saman's kin, and this apparently was important to the culture of the time. The neighbors thought it wrong to complain on account of Froelich's connection to Saman, but eventually, as the nastiness got worse, they started to wish he and his mother had never come. Then enters Uni, one of Froelich's neighbors. He had a son named Odd and a daughter, Hrodni. Both were in their prime, and after getting his reputation good and properly tarnished, Roelief decided to stroll up and tell Uni that he wanted to marry his daughter. Uni naturally refused, telling Roelief that there was nothing about him that would win him a good woman, and that his daughter had far better choices than Roelief. Roelief then threatened to force Roddy to be his concubine instead, which he says is, quote, good enough for her. We're told that Hrolief then went and would sit and have conversations with Rodney against the wishes of her family. Like, what in the world could they possibly talk about? We're not told, but I can't imagine Rodney is particularly happy to hang out and have chats with Hrolief. Nothing suggests these conversations would have been anything but awkward and uncomfortable. Yet here we are. Uni and Odd get tired of Hrolief's visits, and one day as Hrolief was leaving... Uni and Odd had a conversation. Uni said that it was time they stopped doing nothing about the visits. He recounted an event from his past where he took on a chieftain with a great force and prevailed, whereas Hrolief was just one man. Odd, his son, made the claim that Hrolief wasn't going to be easy to deal with since his mother supported him with sorcery and with a cloak that weapons cannot pierce. Odd then said he was going to meet with Hrolief first. Seems like it might be worth trying words before violence. Each family lived in a different valley, separated by a range of mountains, with a path that led across the mountains between. Odd met Froelief one day, on that path between the two valleys, and told him it's time for him to start using that path less often. Froelief said he's been making his own decisions about journey since he was nine years old, and this path wasn't going to be any more difficult with Odd being a creepy stalker. Odd thought Froelief could have come up with a better answer. I assume from the text that this is how Odd responded directly to Froelief, but it's not entirely clear to me. It might have just been internal dialogue. Either way, Froelief went and told his mother that he's going to be taking a slave with him on his journeys from now on, because Uni and Odd are getting annoyed with him. Liat, Froelief's mother, tells him that this is a slave's most important job. Uh, I guess to be a bodyguard or a meat shield? and tells him to try out the cloak she had made for him. I figure we assume here this is the alleged magic cloak that weapons cannot pierce. There's a definite sense of superiority over the Icelanders here. I guess because they're more currently Norwegian, or kinsmen of Salmond, so from a more fancy bloodline. Either way, it's clear she thinks of the locals as uneducated, dirty rustics. Odd, then went and told his father that he wanted to appeal to Samond. Uni wasn't too happy about having this drag on and on, but Odd goes and tells Samond that they've been having a tough time with Froelief, but that they haven't done anything rash out of respect for Samond and the fact that Froelief is his kinsman. Samond says he's not surprised, and it wouldn't be terrible if such a man were to be eliminated. Odd responds by saying that Samond would view it differently if action were taken. I assume Odd is saying he's still concerned Salmon is going to feel obligated to seek revenge for his kinsman's death if they deal with Froelief. 
obviously not because Saman cares about Rolief, but out of the demands of familial honor. Odd reinforces the point that they have a dangerous and troublesome neighbor in Rolief, but that they haven't done anything about it out of respect for Samund. I have to assume here that Odd is trying to get Samund to deal with Rolief, whereas Samund is obtusely telling Odd that he has Samund's permission to kill Rolief and make both their problems go away. When Odd gets home, Uni says that Rolief hasn't stopped harassing Hrodni, and that he is too old, so it's going to have to be Odd who takes action against Rolief, even if his mother does use sorcery. Odd says he'll figure something out. A while later, Odd and four other men set an ambush for, for Hrolief, who had the slave riding with him. Odd jumps up and tells Hrolief that his journey is at an end. Hrolief says it's not over until it's over and that it's time for some bleeding. Odd and Hrolief charge at each other and fight fiercely. We're told that Hrolief was strong and that Iron could not cut his cloak. Odd slays the slave and then cuts Hrolief's foot, where the cloak does not cover him. Odd remarks that Hrolief was wounded, I'm imagining a kind of ha-ha, gotcha, but then Hrolief, quote, gives Odd his death wound, and then slays another man, and the remaining three who came to help Odd fled. This battle took place in the evening on the ground just above Uni's farm. Hrolief heads home and tells his mother about his victory. She said she's glad those dirty farmers won't be deciding where he can go, and Hrolief brags about how he had predicted this would happen to Odd when Odd had... Quote, abused Hrolief, saying he was not equal with brave men. In their own twisted way, this affront to his perceived honor seems to be the justification Hrolief uses for being right in killing Odd. Hrolief, at this point, has essentially committed harassment and assaults on all his neighbors, as well as effectively threatened long-term repeated sexual assault against Rodney. I don't know if trespassing was a thing in their culture, it isn't in modern Scandinavia, but they cared about such things, but if they cared about such things, there might be some trespassing in here, too, out of boredom, as best I can tell. To his credit, Odd really seems to have tried to find every other possible solution to end the harassment of his sister, Hrodney. Uni felt he was too old to do anything at this point, and apparently did not hold out much hope for Odd's appeal to Salmond, and when Odd returned with Salmond's non-action response, he left it to his son to solve the problem. Sadly, now Odd suffered the ultimate price. Though I suspect in the eyes of the reader, it was the right thing to do to stand up to Hrolief's bullying, and he did it in an honorable way, first trying to dissuade Hrolief with words, then checking with Saman to see if he would deal with his kinsman out of respect for Saman's bond. So, Odd really tried to find a nonviolent solution first. Uni goes to what I presume is a friend of his, a guy named Hofti called or from Hofti, called Thord, and asks for his support in seeking to write the death of his son. Thord agrees, but says it really is Salmon's responsibility to deal with Rolief. So the two of them go to visit Salmon. Salmon finally does something about it. He confiscates the land given to Rolief and his mother, and the two go to stay with Salmon. I can't imagine that was fun. Once spring came around, there was something that is translated as a peace meeting, where Salmond awards all the land that had been Hrolief's to Uni, as well as outlaws him from the area. My understanding here is that if Hrolief were ever found in the area of Uni's land, they, or really anyone in the area, could legally kill him without any fears of consequence due to the outlawry. 
No more hiding behind the shield of kinsmen to Salmond. Then Salmond does something that continues to make little sense to me. He calls up old friend Ingamund and tells him he's got some difficult kin he'd like to send his way and to find somewhere to stick them. Ingamund says that he hasn't been hearing anything good about those two and his sons can be, air quotes, difficult to get along with. They go back and forth for a time and Salmond says that Ingamund is lucky and Ingamund responds that this would be a real test of that luck. But he obliges and Froelich and his mother Lot come to stay with Ingamund. So, Hrolief and Lyot stay with Ingamund for two or three years, and nothing about them changes. There was particular friction between Ingamund's son, Jokul, and Hrolief. Now, as a reminder, this son, Jokul, is named after Ingamund's grandfather, the guy basically described earlier like a giant that Ingamund's father, Thorstein, the normal-sized, stabbed through the chest and then agreed to marry his sister. This grandson of Yokel the giant, apparently took after this grandfather and was also big and strong. Enough to match Rolief. They came into conflict many times during what is described as games. I'm not sure what these games are. They're not described in the sagas I've read so far. But I have to think that a certain amount of wrestling may have occurred from time to time due to the emphasis on size and strength. Though certainly other games were more than likely too. Ingemann chastises Froli for not controlling his temper and treating people better, so he sends Froli and his mother to some land on the other side of a river. You'd think they'd start figuring out it isn't other people, but themselves who create all the problems. If they had these sorts of problems with just one person, that would be something. But they have the exact same problems, no matter where they go or who they spend time with. For us, that's a clue that if you have the same problems with lots of different kinds of people in lots of different places, well, maybe the problem is with you and not with others. We often bring our problems with us. No amount of changing jobs, school re- schools, scenery, friends is going to help you if the rot in your life is in your own heart. It's like someone who is constantly awful in a relationship, but then laments that they can never find a good person to be in a relationship with because the only constant is their own bad choices in relationships. Harleaf responds that going to this land across the river is no worse than staying with Ingemann's ill-natured sons. Okay, wow, Harleaf, way to just keep adding insult to another's kindness. Ingemann apologizes for giving up on Harleaf, saying he's never had to do this before. Thorstein, the son of Ingemann, not Ingemann's father, who stayed back in Norway, guesses that things are going to get worse later. Horolif and Liat are described as having settled at this other farm and stayed there a long time. In particular, we are told that Horolif considered himself the equal of any of Ingemann's sons. Well, I'm sure we can all guess what happens next. However long it takes, Horolif eventually finds trouble, and some way to make himself a thorn in everyone's side. So when Ingemann agreed to take Horolif and his mother in, and then sends them to another farm, he also gave them legal rights to fish in the river between their farms as a way to sustain themselves. This river was shared by Ingemann's sons and Hrolief. A condition had to be made that said Hrolief could fish only if Ingemann's sons, Thorstein, Jokul, Thorir, and Hogni, or their men, were not present. So, naturally, Hrolief just did whatever he wanted with no consideration for anyone else. 
One day, Igamin's workers head down to the river to fish, and when they find Hurleaf there, they ask him to move his nets out of the way so they can fish. Hurleaf says he's not going to do anything for a bunch of slaves. These workers were not told what they were, whether they're actually slaves or just workers. I get the sense that Hurleaf is insulting them, though. Anyways, these workers tell Hurleaf that he shouldn't make enemies of Ingamond and his people, because even if he could get away with that elsewhere, he won't hear. Ingamond says that they are wretched slaves and shouldn't threaten him. The workers respond that Hurleaf should be grateful. Ingamond had taken him and his mother in, given them land and fishing rights, and it seemed like neither of them were fit for decent human company. Hurleaf again calls them wretched slaves and says he doesn't have to do anything they tell him. Then he throws a stone at one of the workers and knocks him out, saying that they should watch their tongues. The workers retreat and return to Hof, which you may recall means temple, the incredibly creative name Ingamond had given to his farm when he finally settled on a location permanently. Ingamond asked what the big deal was, and the workers told him that Hrolief had driven them from the river with harsh words and violence. The second son, Yokel, said that Hrolief must be angry to make himself the Gothi of Vatensdal and treat people here the way he has treated them in the past, but that he, he that is Yokel, would never let that happen. The first son, Thorstein, agreed that Hrolief had gone too far, but that it would be best to not handle this rashly. He says it was a mistake to have anything to do with Hrolief in the first place. Ingamund, their father, agrees, but advises them to seek a settlement from Hrolief instead because they have more to lose, and they're sure to be trouble if Hrolief is involved. Yelkel, who takes after his bandit giant grandfather, springs up and rushes out, saying, he'll just go find out if Hrolief was going to leave the river. Ingamund asks his first son, Thorstein, to follow and make sure things stay under control. Thorstein says he's not sure how much he can control his brother, and besides, if Yoko gets into a fight with Hrolief, he's not going to just stand around and watch. When they reach the river, they find Hrolief there fishing. Yoko tells him to get moving and not to mess with them, or they'll settle this once and for all. Hrolief says he's going to do whatever he wants, even if he's outnumbered and despite their wretched cursing. Yokel says Hrolief must really have confidence in his mother's witchcraft to stand against all of them, and then starts wading into the river to fight Hrolief, and Hrolief stands his ground. Thorstein tried to intervene and asked Hrolief to stop being so stubborn to do what's right. Yokel said, let's kill the devil. Hrolief returned to his side of the river and started throwing stones at them. They threw stones back and some spears for good measure, though. We're told that Hrolief was never in any real danger. Yokel said he was going to try crossing at another point in the river, but Thorstein suggests he wait as Hrolief's mother must be nearby, and fighting her sorcery along with Hrolief wouldn't make this like a normal fight. Yokel said he wasn't worried about that and continued to try and cross the river. Meanwhile, another man had returned to Hof and told Igamund what was going on. Igamund told them to get his horse ready, and then we found out just how much Igamund had aged. Apparently, he was mostly blind at this point and was no longer really running things on this farm, having entrusted all the work to his sons. So they found a boy to lead Ingemann's horse who brought him to the river. We're also told that Ingemann was wearing a black cloak. When the son saw Ingemann approaching, Thorstein told his brothers they should withdraw and that he was worried about his father coming here. Ingemann rode out into the river and told Froleif to leave the river and think about what is right and proper. 
Broleaf hurls a spear at Ingamond and hits him in the midsection. Once wounded, Ingamond returns to the shore and tells the boy to lead him home. We're told that he didn't meet with his sons and that the evening was quite advanced at this time. When they got back to Hoff and the boy was helping Ingamond down from the horse, he heard a sucking sound and saw that the spear had gone all the way through Ingamond. Now, I have to think we've been led up to this point to emphasize that no one really realized how badly Ingamond had been injured. He was wearing a black cloak. The evening was well advanced. Apparently there was something about how Ingamond looked as he rode to and from the river that made it hard to tell he had a spear lodged in his body. Ingamond then tells the boy he needs him to do something else, with the quip that it was unlikely he'll be asking the boy for much more from now on. He tells the boy to go back to the river, and warn Hroleaf that by morning Ingamond's sons will very likely be out looking for Hroleaf to avenge themselves. He said that Hroleaf should be gone by morning, because Ingamond won't be helped much by Hroleaf's death, and that it is right to try and help the persons he had agreed to help while he still could. He then snapped the spear off, had the boy lead him to the high seat in the hall, and asked him to not kindle a light before his sons got home. The boy returned to the river and found Froleaf with a pile of salmon. He's clearly quite angry as he tells Froleaf that he's a miserable dog and that there's no way to compensate for the evil he's done to Ingamond. He relays Ingamond's final warning to escape before his sons come, after Froleaf for revenge, but the boy added that he's only saying that out of respect for Ingamon's final wishes, and not because he personally wanted Froleaf to escape the coming axes. In typical Froleaf fashion, he tells the boy that if he hadn't relayed the warning from Ingamond, then the boy wouldn't have left the river in one piece. Meanwhile, Ingamon's sons were still on their way home. They talked among themselves and agreed that Froleaf was a real piece of work and was probably the most despicable man they had ever met. Thorstein said he had a bad feeling about their father's return trip. When they got back to their father's hall, Thorstein slipped on something in the dark. He called for someone to kindle a light and asked why it was so wet in there. Someone replied that it must be from Ingemann's clothes. The implication is that it was water. Thorstein said it's more slippery than that, that it was as slippery as blood. As the light flared, there sat Ingemann, dead upon his high seat, the spear piercing him through. Yokel, in true Yokel fashion, said that it was terrible to know that such a noble man as their father had been killed by such a wretch like Hroleaf. He pauses for a moment, and then said, Well, let's be off and kill him now. <laughs> Thorstein, the ever more balanced of the brothers, said that Yokel didn't really know their father if he didn't realize that Ingemund had somehow already helped Hroleaf escape. He then asked where the boy was that had been leading Ingemann's horse, and of course the boy couldn't be found. With a sigh, Thorstein said that he didn't think they'd find Hurleaf at home and that they should make a plan before rushing into anything. Yokel had worked himself up into a rage by the time the boy returned and told them that Ingemund, what Ingemund had sent him to do. Yokel almost turned his rage on the boy and said it was wrong for the boy to have gone and warned Hurleaf. Thorstein held his brother back, saying that they shouldn't be angry with the boy because he had just been doing what Ingemann had wanted him to do. A funeral was held for Ingemann. He was laid in a small boat, uh, apparently a boat that had somehow been attached to Stigandi. That was the fancy extra-fast boat received from King Harald Fairhair during Ingemann's last trip to Norway. The news of Ingemann's death spread throughout Iceland, and everyone thought it was a terrible thing. 
Thorstein and his brothers all agreed that none of them would sit in their father's seat until they had avenged their father. From that point on, they were rarely seen at festivals and games and kept to themselves. And then something odd, at least to me, happens. A guy named Avon the Proud told his foster son to go to Gout and tell him what Avon was going to do. Then Avon drew his short sword and fell on it, killing himself. Gout, when he heard about this, said that life wasn't worth living in a world without Ingamund and killed himself with a sword too. We'll get to this at the end with the analysis, but I honestly wasn't expecting to find something kind of like the honorable taking of one's own life in the sagas. I mean, it sounds like seppuku or harakiri when a samurai kills himself upon the death of his lord. Apparently it was a thing that happened and was worth recording in the sagas. Meanwhile, Rolief went home and told his mother what had happened. She said that Ingamund had enjoyed a good life, and it was his time to go. Her first advice to her son was to go hide and wait to hear from her. Blood knights, as she calls them, are the most dangerous, and she didn't know yet whether her scheming or Thorstein's cunning and good luck would prevail. Froleaf hightails it off to Skaga Fjord, which, you may recall, was where Salmond ruled from. Salmond, the kinsman who had been shuffling Froleaf and his mother around like a bad piece of driftwood, had apparently died, and his son Girmund was now in charge. He asked Froleaf what the news was. You may recall Girmund was the first person we were told Froleaf had butted heads with back when they had first arrived in Iceland from Norway. Froleaf strolled into the hall and greeted Girmund. He reported that Ingemund had died. Girmund was sad to hear and asked how he had died. Froleaf said Ingemund had been used as a target. Then he told Girmund all that had happened. Now, Girmund wasn't like his father. He told Froleaf that he was an evil creature, to leave and never returned. Froleaf said he was not going anywhere, and then reminded Girman that Froleaf's father had died in the service of Salmond and Igamund. Well, this was news to me. I don't remember anyone mentioning this prior, so while it certainly doesn't excuse Froleaf's behavior, maybe he had some deep-seated resentment because of this. Either way, Girman said that dying in battle is what happens to brave men, and that as soon as Igamund's sons arrive, he'd be handing Froleaf over. Froleaf said he had expected as much or worse and went to hide in what is translated as a harness shed. The entire winter, Ingemann's sons were in mourning. They didn't go to any of the social events or assemblies, and when summer was just around the corner, Thorstein called all the brothers together and told them that it was time to avenge their father. Whoever did this would get his pick of the family treasures. The other brothers agreed and then said that Thorstein was the best choice because of his good sense. So, I had really wanted to get all of Froleaf's story in one episode, but I had several weeks of being extremely sick this month, and lost the time I would have used to make this into a longer-than-usual episode. Sadly, this is probably a good place to stop for now. It's a little bit of a cliffhanger. How is Thorstein going to find and finally kill the troublesome Froleaf? He's been described in the past as at least as big and strong as Yokel, though he might perhaps be a bit more cunning. Goodness knows Froleaf has it coming at this point. Will Froleaf's mother be able to use her sorcery to frustrate Thorstein? We'll have to find out next time. So, let's take a look at what we can learn from this section. Again, I am surprised at how much rock-throwing there is going on. Apparently it was quite a bit more prevalent than I realized. 
There were some more thrown spears again, this time to Ingeman's detriment. You know, I wondered, they didn't say, but uh, Ingeman's sons started off by throwing spears at Hrolief. Was the spear that struck Ingamund one of those thrown back, or did Froleaf have his own spears that he was bringing with him? Even in a society that lived much closer to violence than we do, they still valued finding peaceful solutions. And this makes me think of how many times I've had people ask me if I was worried I had my kids training in martial arts because, quote, it might make them violent or really any of the times I've heard people suggest that training something or owning a weapon makes someone violent. The truth of the matter is that the opposite happens. People who have a good grasp on understanding violence have a tendency to not seek it out because they understand the consequences of using it. They're less likely to want to go down a violent road unless it is absolutely necessary because they actually know how bad it can get. This is something our training should help us better understand. I'm sure you've seen the young, immature, new guy at the gym who's all fire, adrenaline, and go, who doesn't understand his limits or how to interact with others in a violent situation. They are the biggest threat to both themselves and others just due to their tendency to make poor choices and be excessively fast and explosive. I can't tell you how many times I've seen new people come into the, the jiu-jitsu gym get put into some kind of compromising position, and then try to explosively muscle out of it, often damaging themselves in the process. There aren't too many people who do this long-term who don't learn this lesson. I'm sure there are a few, but they're usually so injury-ridden uh, that they stop training. Our training, while it should make us more confident at facing violence, should also be reinforcing the costs of violence, and train us to seek peaceful resolutions first, emphasizing that physical violence should always be a last resort. All right, another thing I noticed was the ritual suicide upon the death of Ingamund. I say ritual. I don't know if it was ritual. But anyways, back in episode 73, we looked at the final chapter of the Budo Shoshinshu, which was a kind of manual for young samurai boys about how to conduct themselves. This final chapter was about something called Junshi, that is, ritual suicide upon the death of one's lord. At that time, which would have been roughly a thousand years after the time of the sagas, it had been officially banned in that time period twice. The very first time before those two would have been roughly at the same time as the sagas. There was just too much political fallout and trouble that came from decent government officials killing themselves off en masse when a lord died, thus shifting the balance of power to his opponents. I could see the same thing happening in the world of, of the sagas. Godi's power came from his supporters, from his gift-giving and influence. So to have two people kill themselves upon Ingemann's death, well, as we'll see, the sons of Ingemann do just fine, but could they have been better helped by Ingemann's friends not killing themselves? I don't know. <coughs> there certainly wasn't this loyalty-until-death ideology typified in stories of the samurai, and yet this little quip about two characters that have nothing to do with the rest of the story falling on their swords when the hear of Ingemann's death was included for a reason. My reading of it suggests that this was to emphasize how important and respected Ingemann was, and it was included in the story with no explanation, 
suggesting that it wasn't considered weird or odd or in need of any explaining. It was just a matter-of-fact recounting of what happened. So, yeah, that gave me something to think about. What's also curious is how much time passes before things happen. Odd and Uni seek out all sorts of alternatives to fighting with Froleaf before it coming to blows. The same is true with Ingamund and his sons. Well, except Yokel. That guy just wants to go kill Froleaf all the time. <laughs> and maybe they could have avoided some trouble if he had. But it's noteworthy that Ingamund stands by his word, even as he's dying by the hand of the person he's agreed to take care of. His word is more important here, and that is lifted up in the saga as something worthy and honorable. Even though Froleaf escapes, I get the feeling his time is coming to an end, as no one is left who is willing to shelter him. Thorstein, Jokul, and the rest of Ingemin's sons wait an entire winter and spring before deciding to go find Froleaf, and I have to wonder if that isn't intentional. As Liot, Froleaf's mother, warned him, the Blood Knight is the most dangerous, and perhaps with time, Froleaf might be lulled into a false sense of security. They wait until the time is right to avenge their father. Or maybe it just was that cold and snowy there that revenge was worthy, waiting for summer. It's hard to tell, and we're not told why. So, find out what happens to Froleaf in the next Saga episode, which will likely be in August. I may have to take a short break for an episode or two as I head to Asia for a couple months. I'm not carting my library with me, nor the giant tome I'm using for the sagas, so I'll likely find something local to work on. I've got a good possibility in a book that is being published in August. I've received an advanced copy to read, and it's all about the history of martial arts in Taiwan, seen through the eyes of a family that experienced it for themselves over the last century. So, as always, remember, don't just talk about philosophy, but like your martial art, live it.